Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. I think as we start to find equilibrium in the macro economy, the opportunities are going to be really compelling. No one can control the economic landscape that they build their business in, but they can certainly use the experience as a foundation for seizing compelling opportunities. And I think that we, despite a lot of challenges over the last couple of years, have positioned ourselves really, really well to capitalize on that opportunity and to do it in the right way, the way that is important to us for our relationships and importantly for our communities and our residents. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Over the last few years, the wavering economy has presented problems for virtually every market. In real estate, rising rates and inflation have challenged buyers and sellers alike. But while wading through those waters, today's guests managed to find a silver lining in their unique investment field. Today, we get to sit down with Matt Fraser, a 20-year veteran of real estate, private equity, and corporate finance. He is the founder and CEO of Jones Street Investment Partners, a multifamily investor with more than $2 billion in assets under management. In this role, Matt is responsible for all aspects of the company's growth, including fundraising, deal sourcing, and the growth of the Jones Street team. Prior to forming Jones Street, Matt served as the VP of Investments and Capital Markets at Tay Mill Partners, a multifamily owner and operator active throughout New England. Before that, he was the VP at the private equity and venture arm of Fleet Bank, which became Bank of America. Matt received a BA in Media Studies with a concentration in Philosophy with honors and distinction from Penn State University. Let's enter the arena with Matt Fraser. I came out of, of PE and VC in 2008, 2009, and I originally did that on part of the balance sheet that I knew really well, which was the distressed area. My first job in finance was working for Fleet Bank in the loan workout group back in the, the dot-com crash. And if you remember coming through the GFC, there was a lot of stress in real estate and banks were holding a lot of loans that were thought to be in trouble. And so I thought I saw an opportunity there to transition into real estate, which is an area that I had a lot of interest in, but doing it on a part of the balance sheet that I had a lot of expertise in, which was the distress world. That opportunity didn't really come about. The, the government, probably for the benefit of, of our economy, rewrote the rules for the banks, and they didn't have to recognize a lot of that distress and were able to kind of kick the can, so to speak, on a lot of those loans. And that big wave of distressed opportunity didn't come, but that's how I originally transitioned out of PE and VC into real estate. Interesting. And uh, I know when you started, I read a, a couple of quotes here and there. It was kind of you in a room doing deals, doing everything yourself. 
were you naturally good at like finding people and putting them in the right slots and, you know, describe what you have today. What is, what is Jones street today in terms of, you know, your team and structure and all of that? Yeah. Well, there, there's a funny story. When I started the company, my wife was doing freelance writing at the time and she had rented an office within a suite of offices, which itself was above a dentist in the town where I live South of Boston. And the woman who was in the back of the suite did speech therapy for little kids. And I was at the front of the suite. And the waiting area was outside of my office. And my office door was a glass door. And I was a company of one at the time with two children. And now I have four. But I had two young kids and no fallback plan. And I would be sitting in this office doing, as you said, everything myself, looking through the glass door at little kids doing blowfish on my office door, seeing me behind the door wondering what I was doing and scratching my head and questioning myself and saying to myself, geez, I, I really hope this works. It's not easy to start anything. And, and, you know, you get a little office space and you got to get a computer and you got to do QuickBooks. You got to get an IT person. And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, you're like an overnight success, but it's, it's not easy to do. So, you know, in your world, it seems to me like, you know, everyone's investing in multifamily markets, like in the South you know, the Sun Belt, but you're focused in the Northeast and Middle Atlantic, which for an outsider looking in who's not a professional might seem, wow, you know, maybe those markets aren't as booming. And maybe that's the whole point. Why are you kind of doing what you're doing and focusing in those geographic areas? Well, you're right. They don't boom as much, but the corollary to that is they don't bust as much either. We have stabler markets here in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. And there are, are good reasons over the last few economic cycles that a lot of capital has chased the, the higher demographic, higher economic growth into the Sun Belt, the Southeast, markets out West. But they come with different risks. They create the risks through that flight of capital. And our markets, which are still the most densely populated markets in the United States, don't experience the same cycles, the same boom and bust. Measured over the very long term, which is like, which is how we like to think about our investing, the fundamental of the two areas are actually very similar, if not better in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. We have higher occupancy over time and similar average rent growth. We just don't do it with the highs and the lows that those markets down south or out west do. And we think that makes for a better risk-adjusted investment profile. And just kind of staying on the Sun Belt versus the Northeast, what's the supply-demand dynamic kind of in the Sun Belt versus the Northeast? Why, why do rents seem to be a little bit safer in the Northeast and Middle Atlantic? What's your take on that? Well, we are in the most supply-constrained markets in the United States. And we, for better or worse, have much higher barriers to entry here. In certain markets in the South or in the Southeast, out West, new product can be delivered very quickly. And the path from new to being obsolete can be measured in 5, 10, 15 year timeframes. But in our markets, as anyone who's spent any time in Boston or, or New York, Philadelphia knows, housing product can last 100 years or more because it's just really hard to deliver new supply to these markets. And there's a national narrative right now of a supply glut in multifamily. And it is true when measured nationally, but real estate is not a national phenomenon. Real estate is very local. 
And those big bumps in supply are very specific to a handful of markets, Dallas, markets in Florida, Phoenix, Austin. They're not true in the Northeast in our markets, in Boston and the secondary cities of New England. New supply measured as a percentage of the existing supply is a tiny fraction of what it is in markets like Nashville or Austin. Yeah. So your rents are probably safer to put it in a, in a fifth grader's terms. And I have to imagine part of the barriers to entry that you talked about in New England, the middle of Atlantic are kind of, and, and I, I don't know if I'm right in this one, but like bureaucracy, red tape, higher building costs sometimes. Is that accurate? That's right. That's certainly part of it. Uh, I mean, it, it starts with just a lot less land. It, you know, finding large tracts of land to develop is very difficult. Even finding small tracts that can, uh, you know, take dense housing are very, very difficult because these are much older, more tightly compacted geographic markets. But then on top of that is what you said. You have, you know, very active local governments, very active local communities. The not in my backyard factor is very strong and it creates a, you know, two to four year time frame from conception to delivery of product for, you know, scaled multifamily. In other markets, it can be half that. Yeah. And is it basically kind of the, your senior team, the relationships you've developed over a long period of time that help you navigate that maybe a little bit quicker than others? Yeah. And to be clear, you know, development is right now probably 20 to 25% of our business. It's something that we want to grow and, and we're very focused on growing over the next couple of years. But most of what we do at the present time is stabilize multifamily. But that dynamic that we were talking about of being supply constrained certainly benefits owners and investors in existing multifamily product because you can feel reasonably confident that there's not going to be a lot of new competition coming at you during the term of your hold period. For sure. More specifically, Matt, what are some of the cities in New England and in the middle Atlantic that you like for multifamily and why is that? We have had some great investment success in Portland, Maine. We are currently developing a large asset in Manchester, New Hampshire. Very recently, over the last couple of months, we've acquired two assets in Richmond, Virginia. What we like about these markets is a theme that we've long had that we have coined core rental demand without core investment demand. So we can show empirically over long periods of time that the rental fundamentals, supply demand, are equivalent to, if not better than, what would be considered a core market like a Boston or New York. But the pricing on those assets is lower because there's less investment demand for them. And when you think about that, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If I have fundamentals in two locations that are identical, you would think they trade for equivalent pricing, but they don't. And that's because a lot of capital in our business just assumes that the core market is going to be safer. And in that assumption, bid up pricing there and create a new risk for themselves, which is higher pricing and less opportunity for, or less margin of safety, greater opportunity for things to go wrong. And we like to do the opposite of that, is have more margin of safety and have more opportunities for things to go right, which is why we like investing in those markets. <laughs> sounds simple. Yeah, it does sound simple, yeah. but um, it, it's not often practiced. Yeah. How about your lending relationships? Obviously, uh, rates have gone up over the last couple of years, hopefully easing from here on in. Do you think your track record has allowed you to get financing in terms that just seem more reasonable to you? Yes. Multifamily benefits like no other real estate asset class from the existence of 
Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the agency lenders, that is a more stable and lower cost option for debt financing in our business. Not everybody can access it. You need to have scale and you need to have a team that knows how to, you know, underwrite, execute, and then ultimately manage assets with that debt on it. But we've done that a lot and that allows us to access that debt financing, which is not available in industrial retail or certainly office. It has been a very interesting time. As you mentioned, we watched, you know, setting aside what's happened for the last couple of years, just in the last 120 days, the treasury markets went up by about 100 basis points and now have come back down by about the same. It's been a pretty hard time to know how to value real estate, underwrite real estate because of the volatility in the world. Commercial real estate sector is expected to see around $2 trillion worth of loans mature this year with an additional half a trillion specifically allocated to multifamily properties. With such a substantial opportunity at hand, I wanted to know how Jones Street is positioning itself to capitalize on this immense potential. It's about $700 billion of multifamily loans maturing in the next couple of years. Some meaningful percentage of that with floating rate debt that was likely sourced from, call it 2020 through, you know, beginning of 2022. And that floating rate debt probably has a cap on it, but that cap is at a rate that is materially higher than what that investor thought would be in place at this point in time. So the way we think about this is this is a window of opportunity, particularly in our markets where I talked about those fundamentals being so stable. We're not talking about distressed real estate. What we might be looking at over the next couple of years are distressed balance sheets where owners become sellers because they have debt in place that is forcing them to take action. There will be rescue capital out there. There is a lot of rescue capital out there right now that is trying to help those I mean, opportunistically, help on their terms. How about that? And a lot of people will be able to access it and will be able to to live. They'll be able to extend that debt or refinance that debt with the assistance of some new capital into their capital structure, but many will not. And that will force a lot of action, we think, a lot of sales action over the next couple of years. And that is compounded by, frankly, just a lot of pent-up sales demand for the last year and a half we've been in a capital markets recession in our business ever since, you know, kind of the spring of 2022 when inflation, we all thought it was turning and going lower. It actually went higher. Really since that time, people have been, for the most part, pencils down in the world because they've been trying to figure out what are, you know, where are rates going? What's a terminal rate? How do we understand the value of real estate? And I think that we're starting to get some clarity there. I don't think everybody has it yet. But in that haze, so to speak, we see opportunity and we see a lot of potential deal flow coming. And again, it's with underlying strong real estate and strong real estate fundamentals, which is incredibly compelling and exciting for us. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it. It's a great asset with a balance sheet problem. It's not like it's a bad asset or something. So, you know, you would think with the right cap structure, you'd be able to take advantage of opportunities, which would be key for for all your partners. Matt, as a as kind of a vertically integrated firm, 
Maybe talk more about the importance of having that in-house operations team and property management team. Talk about the team, what they can do, how it makes your business stronger. So from that, being by myself in the office with the kids making blowfish on my door. We're downtown Boston now. I have 53 people here in the main office and across the entire organization, about 170. As you said, we manage our own assets and that's really important. We don't give it over to somebody else to manage. Multifamily is very much an operating business. If we have a 300 unit property, we have somewhere between six and eight full-time employees on site every day at that property, making sure that we're leasing units and responding to maintenance requests, doing everything that needs to be done to manage that asset for our residents. And giving that over to somebody else is really kind of silly. And trusting somebody else to carry out our business plan, execute on our investment strategy, is not something that we're willing to do. We don't accept third-party fee assignments from others for the same reason. We built our management platform to serve our investment company. And it gives us that control that we need. Yeah. We talked a little bit about what's going on in the macro environment. And when you started by yourself, you had a lot of agility. At 100 100 plus people, do you still have the agility to kind of capitalize on different faces of the economic cycle in the multifamily world. Is that size and scale considered nimble in your mind? I would say from the outside world looking in, we are still a very nimble operator. You mentioned that we have $2 billion of real estate under management. In our world, you know, that's a big number, but it's still relatively small. And we have ability to move quickly, adjust our strategies quickly, and we've done that really well over the last couple of years. And, and we have a lot of really interesting plans for the next couple of years ahead. Outwardly, I would say that it's all about the people that I have here and the team that we built. My ability and our firm's ability to be nimble is entirely dependent upon how effective we are as a team, managing one another, managing our assets. If we're not doing a good job with what we have in place, if we don't have people that can think creatively and entrepreneurially on their own, that nimbleness that we should have just completely goes away. So I do spend a lot of my time making sure that we're getting the right people on the team here, that they're empowered to do the things that we want and need them to do, that they want to do, that they can think entrepreneurially and creatively about you know better ways to do what they're doing or even entirely new ways to tackle a problem. It's one of the great challenges, but opportunities and ultimately probably the most rewarding part of my job. Yeah, for sure. I know that you do have a few strategic priorities to better the business, to grow, expanding the portfolio, growing AUM, strong performance, adding great talent. How would you rate yourself on progress against those goals and How do you get to the next level by improving each of those aspects that I just mentioned? I always think that things are moving a lot slower than I would like. It's probably not accurate, but to me, it's, you know, why can't I get a response to this right now? And and why aren't we doing this yesterday rather than next week? But being objective about it, I think that we have done a really great job of growing the business, acting on our goals. And those goals are evolving. And that's one of the things that's particularly challenging is to know that that's okay, that the world changes around you. 
and it's okay to understand that things are going to move and going to be moving. And the thing that you thought was going to happen before something like a pandemic hit is now no longer the best thing or even the right thing for the business. And there's a new direction in which you can travel. And I think as we are coming through this, we had like the waves of the pandemic. I, I tell people, like, I feel like we're in, we're dealing with economic waves of the pandemic right now. And we're in one of those fluctuating periods right now. But I, I'm, I'm very excited about the next 12, 24 months for the business. That's cool. And, and where do you see like new and interesting opportunities in multifamily? You know, we were alluding to without saying it directly, like maybe there's some markets that are just getting totally overbuilt, you know, a lot of, lot of units going in, maybe rents go down, maybe there's distressed situations. I mean, could you see yourself beyond kind of New England and Middle Atlantic going and um, picking up the pieces of, of some projects in other areas that might get overbuilt in the next few years? You know, it's, it's funny. People are coming to us often with that, with a pitch, an opportunity. We want to be really disciplined in our investment thesis and how we think we can provide value to our investors. And so while there might be really compelling and relatively easy to access opportunities in other markets as they experience some distress, I don't anticipate us pursuing them because I want to stay disciplined on, on what we know. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity in our markets. I mentioned Richmond as a new market for us recently. We think the fundamentals of that market are really exciting and it is as yet still somewhat underappreciated. And there are a handful of other markets within our footprint as well. But beyond that, there's also, I mentioned development before, there's going to be an incredibly compelling opportunity for new development over the next few years. We are currently delivering four assets, almost a thousand units here in New England. But we began those developments two or three years ago, and we're just getting to the end stages of those now. There are no new developments beginning today. They're too hard to underwrite. The cost of construction right now is, is out of balance with the value created in the development. And even if it made sense, debt financing is very difficult to access. And that will mean that in another two or three years, there won't be any new supply hitting the market. And we see that as a great opportunity. And this is not rocket science. We've seen it before. It happened coming out of the GFC. But anyone who can be assembling the capital, finding the sites, being prepared to kick off development activity sometime in the next six to 12 months is going to do really, really well in a few years when those deals are able to deliver to the market. And we're trying to go do that. Yeah, that's very exciting. What advice would you give someone who's interested in getting into multifamily investments? I mean, I would imagine it's a very big market and um, a lot of opportunity, but you, you sure could get buzzsawed if you don't know what you're doing, right? You mentioned before my background in private equity and venture capital. I would encourage anyone thinking about a career in multifamily to approach it from the investment side rather than the real estate side or you know, potentially even from the debt side. You have to think about rental fundamentals and you have to learn what downside is. And I, I uniquely benefited from that. I mentioned my first job in finance working in the dot-com crash doing loan workouts. I got a couple years of just being thrown into the fire, seeing how things can go bad. 
and understanding that downside risk is not in our world, rents grow at 2% instead of 3%. Downside risk is you lose money. And how do those things happen? What are the things that can, that you can do? Or even what are the things that you don't anticipate? We have like once in a lifetime events every 10 years from the dot-com crash to the GFC and now COVID. And so you have to understand when you're making investments that there's a lot that you can't control. And how do you approach your investment to mitigate that risk, the risk that you don't even know about? For us, we think about that long-term with fixed-rate debt, being opportunistic on exits. But I would encourage anyone to think about it from that angle first, and then the real estate second. I think you really have to be wired in a certain way, Matt. And I mean that in a positive way to like do what you do. I'm too emotional. Like someone would show me something in like Florida and I'd like jump all over it, you know, and I'm sure even those deals you get shown are like good deals, right? But you have to have this like crazy focus on what you're doing and not like jump at like these shiny objects that are like coming your way all the time. Is there someone who keeps you in check or are you the person who keeps everyone else in check or is it a combo? It's probably some combination. And, and for me, it's probably my, my four kids keep me in check more than anything else. So, you know, whatever emotion I have during the workday, I go home and I got to let that go because it's time to be a dad. But, you know, I, I think we function really well as a team. I mentioned my, my partner, Matt Rinaldi, he and I have known one another for over 25 years and have looked at a lot of opportunities together and have a great working relationship and know that, you know, one of us might be more bullish or bearish on a deal, but they're just deals. And it might come and it might work, it might go. And if that happens, we just move on to the next. Makes sense. I love asking this question because I'm an entrepreneur like you, started my company 25 years ago. And to me, it like never gets to where I want it to be in my head. But I guess, where would you see Jones Street in 10 years what would like a great 10 year run be like? Well, first of all, congratulations on 25 years. That's, that's really fantastic. I aspire to that. 10 years from now, we'll be in year 20. And what I hope is regardless of size and scale, I've built something that is still true to our culture and our, our identity. And, you know, I'll be in the, the back half of my 50s at that time. I hope I built a bench, a team of people that I can be looking at to start handing over the reins to and who will do so in a way that is consistent with the way that I've always thought of the firm and, and thought of our values. You know, I, I don't want it to be the same business that it is today. I do hope that it is bigger and that we've accomplished a lot and built a great brand for ourselves. But the thing that will mean the most to me is that, that I'm building something that is leaving a legacy and enduring beyond me. I always joke with people here, my goal is to be the least important person. Someday I'm gonna walk through the door and nobody's gonna know who I am. Jones Street is in the middle of an incredible opportunity, but they're approaching it with caution, confidence, and adaptability. Through years of careful consideration in their market niche, they've become equipped to tackle any challenge and take advantage of opportunities as they arise. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. 
If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Matt for joining us today on the show. His focused, prudent, and strategic approach will help Jones Street navigate the exciting potential of the next 24 months and solidify the company in decades to come. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.